0: but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the the tradition of men. And And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now, this section of scripture is very popular among Hebrew Roots believers, and Messianic Jews, um, and mainstream Christians, but for different reasons, you know, and there are a million teachings about it, and so I'm not really going to rehash. You know, I even covered it in my um, apologetic, The Bridge. When we place all the emphasis of these verses with what does and does not qualify as food to a Jew, we miss the larger and very difficult teaching that I'm going to go into this week and next week, because this is a two-parter. There's a ton going on here, and to do it justice, um, I read uh, Mishnah Tractate Yadayim, which concerns the cleanliness of hands, which is what Yadayim means, hands, as well as the pseudepigraphic letter of Aristeus, which purports to be an account of, of how the Septuagint came to be produced for the library at Alexandria. In the letter is a very fascinating speech about um, 2nd century BCE philosophical ideas about why certain foods were and were not permitted to be eaten. And it all had... um, something to do with how oppressive the animals were considered to be or how representative of this or that sort of wickedness. I'll tell you, the effects of Persian exile and Hellenism on Jewish thought is really fascinating and has carried over into so much uh, that a lot of what people label as, you know, Hebraic thought actually has its origins in other cultures entirely. And that's not all bad, it's just interesting. And it doesn't, by definition, make those thoughts pagan either. You know, truly Hebraic, quote-unquote Hebraic thought, has never been entirely separate from the culture of the world around it. And that's actually okay. No culture is an island of less. Of course, it developed on an island with no outside influence. Um, which is impossible because people on the island originally came from somewhere and brought who they were with them. I also read a book that has been sitting on my shelf for years, and I picked it up on a lark, um just thinking I'd use it someday, and by coincidence, quote-unquote, I found it last week, um and it was called The Lord's Table, The Meaning of Food in Early Judaism and Christianity, by... um Jillian Feely Harnick, and it's a very early anthropological study of the concept of the ancient practice of culture setting themselves apart via food. What they will and will not eat, and who they will and will not eat it with, you know, and I wish I'd read it years ago. These types of books are commonplace now with the focus on biblical anthropo- anthropology and sociology, but back back in the day when this was written, it was very courageous and avant-garde. Now, and I think it was written like back in the uh, 70s or 80s. Now, first two chapters were slow going, but once I hit chapter three, I was just loving it. It is written in a more scholarly language than most books I talk about because it was written back before scholars started toning down the ivory tower gobbledygook, And started writing more for normal people. But when this book was originally written, um, you know, back in the early 80s, no normal people would ever even know it existed. But we'll be incorporating a lot of her material in today's lesson. Um... Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist. I forgot to introduce myself. (laughs) And welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at CharacterAndContext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. And if you like this sort of thing, I also have a children's program that airs here on Hebrew Nation Online. And also... I have a podcast channel and a website, uh, character in, or, sorry, contextforkids.com. You can find all those past broadcasts. Um, yeah. And with the transcript even. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with the whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So. I want to talk very briefly about Mishnah Tractate Yadayim, which is found in Seder Torahot, dealing with ritual impurity, which makes sense. This is also the location of Tractate Kalim, which I talked about in the Seven Woes teaching about the washing of cups and bowls. If you are unfamiliar with the Mishnah, it was compiled around 200 of the common era and consists of various legal rulings, of the Jewish Sanhedrin, along with other various interesting tidbits. Some of these are very important for understanding the Gospels, and a lot is not. Yadayim, meaning hands, discusses what makes the hands impure, how to ritually wash them, how much water is needed, what kind of water is acceptable, what invalidates the washing, etc., etc just fyi if you ever wondered about the traditions about why hands are considered defiled after touching a torah scroll this is where you would find that information excuse me but as i always say you know get the mishnah with commentary or you will not understand it it was a legal document written to be understood by people who were already legal experts not duffers like you and I. So anything I tell you about the hand-washing comes from there. There are some great commentaries. I prefer the Kahati, but I have other friends who love the JPS or Art Scroll. So let's start into chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... All right, we're going to stop. This is really important. The last place recorded as a location for Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, and the disciples was Gennesaret, a small coastal town on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, southwest of Capernaum. And people were flocking to him and bringing their sick, and it says that wherever he went, this was happening, so my assumption is... That he left Gennesaret, and we now have no idea where they are. Perhaps Capernaum, because we have a second incident of scribes coming from Jerusalem in this account, which seems like it would fit in way better with the five controversies of Mark, um, chapter two, verse one through chapter three, verse six. It's definitely a sixth controversy, but. It is here instead, and there's a really good reason for that. Uh, In the weeks to come, we're going to have a number of incidents where Yeshua is in Gentile territory, and so the question of what brings defilement is going to be vitally important. But remember, okay, the last time he encountered the scribes from Jerusalem, they accused him of being in league with Beelzebul. And he flat out said that they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit in doing so. Scribes from Jerusalem are going to be part, you know, of an official fact-finding follow-up tour. This sort of thing would involve verbal honor shame challenges in hopes of tripping him up on a point of the law in order to discredit him. I mean... They accused him of being in league with the Prince of Demons, you know, and so the gloves had come off, and we can't really say they were there to see if they could legitimate him at this point, okay? Quite the opposite. They had an agenda, despite the, excuse me, despite the people just loving him at this point. After all, he had just healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and raised the dead. Everyone should be celebrating and rejoicing. But as with the man with the withered hand healed in the synagogue, not everyone is as thrilled as they should be. They're refusing to praise God for the miracles and are on a fault-finding mission, not a fact-finding mission. Verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Okay. Now, some people get the wrong idea here sometimes. All right? One, only the disciples are failing to wash their hands. Or two, all of the disciples are not washing their hands. Both of these are incorrect assumptions based on what we see here where it clearly says that some and not all of the disciples are eating with quote unquote, defiled hands and, and uh, we also see it in, in Luke 11. Now this was evidently not something that Yeshua is enforcing as a doctrine, either pro or con. Some of his disciples do the washing and some of them don't. Evidently, Yeshua is not the hand-washing police. But what about Yeshua? In Luke 11, we have this account. Starting in, this is verse 37 and 38. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash wash before dinner. So, Yeshua either never or didn't always observe the hand-washing ritual. But regardless of of whether he did here in this incident in Mark or not, we aren't told. See how easy it is to read into things? (laughs) A teacher was considered to be entirely responsible for the behavior of his students. But what does it mean to have defiled hands anyway? I mean, it sounds awful! Now, first, let's talk about the word defiled. It is the translation of the Greek word koinos and simply means common, which is what you would call anything that wasn't holy. So, you know, koinos is not bad. Anything we eat today is common and none of it is holy. To be holy, it had to be set apart by God with a special status so the tithe of the produce was holy and could only be eaten by the priest and members of their immediate household. Meat sacrificed in the temple was holy only after. The blood had been splashed on the sides of the altar and the chalev, which is the organ fat, and the innards, you know, um, were burned on the altar. Now meat was not holy unless that happened, period. Otherwise, it was cholen which is the Hebrew word for common, ordinary, mundane, etc. Like, the Sabbath is holy, kadosh, but the other six days of the week are not holy. They are ordinary days that we perform mundane tasks on. So, how can hands be common, Ordinary or mundane, and, and why does it matter? Okay, just gonna start in verse three here. Uh, For the Pharisees and the Jews, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots. And copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, "Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands?" I mean, okay. Oh no, let's do this first. Let's look at um, the Babylonian Talmud Sota four B. I don't know why it's in Sota. <laughs> Sota is one of the. It's about the um. It's about the sota, the uh the test in the temple to see if the wife's been adulterous. So I don't know why it's in here, but if you ever read Seder Nashim, which I have, you're going to find that it has more than its fair share of stuff stuck into the different um um you know, Tractates is like, why are you there? You have nothing to do with this. Anyway, so Sota 4b of the Babylonian Talmud. Whoever eats bread without previously washing hands, it is though he had intercourse with a harlot. Oh, maybe that's why. <laughs> Dang. And according to Mishnah Etiot, Rabbi Eliezer, um, B. Hanok was excommunicated for questioning the washing of hands and his coffin was stoned. Which, you know, it's like, it's one thing when you stone a person, they didn't stone him. He was just excommunicated. But when he died, they disrespected his coffin. Come on, guys. Jeez. Okay. That's serious. They, they took this seriously, beyond seriously. Stone a guy's coffin. Okay, uh, I, I, I don't know if I should make fun because, you know, we all do silly things too. We all take things seriously that more seriously than they should be taken. So people define themselves religiously, and this is not just with, with the Jews or, or anything. Uh, this is This is cultures all over the world. People define themselves religiously by how set apart they believe they are with respect to somebody else. I see people doing it with sacred naming, uh, what words they use to describe and name things, which calendar they observe, what doctrines they observe and how they observe them, whether or not they approve of music, um, whether they want to follow rabbinic decrees or shun them all, etc., etc. Really? Um, humans are natural-born artificial boundary setters. And the Pharisees were no different, nor were the Essenes or the Sadducees. In the world, you know, as far as first century Jews were concerned, there were Jews on one hand and Gentiles on the other. They were divided by lifestyle and especially by food. Now, Jacob Neusner, who was born into a Jewish family and who wrote or edited a grand total of like 900 books over the course of his career, and I'm not kidding, was an expert in rabbinics and even translated the Talmud, no small feat. I mean, let's see, okay, how many books have I written or edited for somebody else? Six, seven, eight, nine, (laughs) ten... I was like, "This guy has done 900, and I assure you, his books are more heavy hitting than mine." Oh gosh, you know, some of us are just stinking slackers. Um, anyway, so he was an expert in rabbinics, and even translated the Talmud, which is no small feat. So you know, one of those books was the Talmud, or maybe they they divided it into the different set. Sa- yeah, you know what? Those 900, I hope that some of them were, you know, they were the sections because there's a lot of sections, you know, and that's no small feat. He graduated from Harvard, studied at Oxford, and then became a conservative rabbi. He was a total brainiac. Anyway, he estimated, based on his studies, that a whopping 67% of the traditions of the elders concerned food in one form or another, think about that. Food was a huge cultural boundary, barrier, and indicator of either belonging or not belonging. How you tithe your produce, how much and what um, items you tithe, who you can eat with based on whether they tithed correctly or not, who can you buy food from and who can't you buy food from? And what if you buy food from a vendor you suspect didn't tithe properly? How do you deal with the insides and outsides of cups and, and bowls? And how do you ritually, you know, cleanse dining couches? Triclinia. Who is acceptable for table fellowship and who is shunned? What prayers are spoken before breaking bread and drinking wine? And, and what about other foods? how you answered these questions and how you lived determined which group you were and were not an insider in so the amharats the people of the land were not trusted to get much of anything right according to the talmud you know which was written 600 years before or after sorry these these events occurred if you bought produce from them and you were a Pharisee, you had to tithe on it before you ate it, just in case. Peer pressure was really brought to bear, you know, by the Pharisees on the rest of Israel to do things their way. But before you think they're unique, the uber-strict Qumran community, which might have been the Essenes Josephus talked about, wouldn't eat anything that was grown outside their communities. If you joined, you were on probation for three years before you could eat with them, before you could eat the sacred bread. And even once you weren't on probation anymore, before eating you had to full body immerse yourself and put on clean clothes, then you could eat. And the eating was accompanied by specific prayers. And the punishments for even minor infractions of their rules were to be kicked out of the group meals for months. If someone was exiled, they might die because they truly believed that they were sinning by eating food from outside the community. Now, this is just to say that all that the different groups in Judaism in the first century really made sure that they were only eating and associating with people whom they felt a close enough affinity. It really makes you stop and appreciate some of the parables, why the older brother of the prodigal wouldn't want to eat with him. Why it was so shocking um, Yeshua's teaching to invite just anyone to your feast instead of your close, like minded comrades. Group boundaries you know are, are still very important in a lot of places. And um which is you'll know, find to a point. Okay, But when the boundaries serve to be so exclusive that brothers are no longer able to share a table, then that's a problem in God's kingdom. In Titus 3.10, we see a different standard among God's people. Oh, so let start in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So we are told not to divide over this or that practice that has nothing to do with actual sin, but to divide from those who are divisive and destructive to the unity and peace of the brethren. And, uh, (laughs) run out of time. We'll be back in, uh, in just a few minutes. Just get back into part two. Hi, this is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context, where this week we're talking about, oh, the opening of Mark Chapter 7, the famous All Foods Clean episode, which really didn't have anything to do with food at all when it really came down to it. And we've been talking about boundary settings in religion and and what this actually was all about. And, you know, last week we talked about... Jubilees, and although Jubilees is a was a sectarian document, who uh, which was actually a hoax in trying to promote certain things that were not biblical. Um, and, and check out that I, I go through it and I, I talk about the chronological errors and the factual errors and the times when it it, it it's just kind of a mess but it was very reflective of the feelings of that time that there had to be separations between people and especially between Jew and Gentile. So, you know, I talked about that there. But, you know, we're not to divide over small things, okay? Like we just read Titus uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, where we're commanded not to be divisive over just, you know, Let's, I'll I'll read uh, 9 through 11 again, Uh, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, you know, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned, you know, sadly, I see people dividing over things that cannot be proven, and refusing to dissociate from slanders, liars, divisive people, people who are abusive, who lord authority, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We tolerate these things and give the boot to people over pronunciations and calendars and such. And, and such things should not be. We're doing the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. Uh, we, we have not changed at all in some ways. And so we should approach this text from the vantage point of saying, what arbitrary or unprovable non-sin related doctrines do I hold to be so important that I look at brothers and sisters who hold other views to be unworthy of fellowshipping lovingly with unless they come over to my side? You know, um... I think that if we're honest, a lot of us can come up with things that with some deeply cherished ideas that we've elevated to levels that they do not belong. Um, vaccinations, masks, whether people should drink or not, speaking in tongues, women in ministry, breastfeeding, homeschooling, et cetera. We women are good at coming up with reasons to not be loving to other women. So I'm picking on us here, ladies. Now. The Pharisees, according again, according to Neusner, um, dedicated 67% of their regulations to dealing with food. And so this was no smaller side issue with them. It was a boundary marker, not only between Jews and Gentiles, but between Jews and Jews. In the case of the Qumran community, it determined who truly was a Jew and who was not. So let's look at that passage again. why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So, who is the audience here? Now, I haven't talked about this before, but it's believed that the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome by an associate of Peter. Uh, traditionally, early church writers attributed it to John Mark. However, that cannot be proven but we're seeing a lot of Roman loan words. And it was obviously originally written in Greek. Um, Rome was home to a mixed Jewish-Gentile-Messianic community. Not that they were living peaceably with one another, and anyone who reads Roman can see that, Romans can see that there was a lot of friction. The author might have been Jewish, but if he was not, he certainly knew a lot about Judaism and the scriptures. Um, what he clearly doesn't expect is for his audience to know a lot about Judaism. Here, as in other places, he explains why the Jews were having heartburn with Yeshua's disciples over the hand-washing rituals. This guy knew a lot of the Torah and the prophets, though, whoever he was. But he also clearly felt that he had to explain what the debate was about. Remember that these were read aloud to congregations of people who would often largely be illiterate. Okay, reading verse 5 again. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? The real question here is, Why aren't your disciples behaving in a holy manner? Why aren't they acting like us? The ritual hand-washing was not only a religious thing, it was deeply cultural, and it was highly political. It was an us-versus-them thing. This is what separates us from the heathens. In the minds of the first century Pharisees, everything was about living side-by-side with Rome, but without becoming any more involved with their culture than was absolutely necessary. Um... Excuse me. So washing hands after returning from the marketplace was necessary to be free of the defiling presence of the Gentiles in their midst and whatever they might have come in contact with or the dust they brought in with them. And remember that in Tosefta Babakama 1.5, it says that foreign dust is defiling. If you remember from past teachings, Gentile women, and especially Samaritan women, were considered to be nida, which is to have menstrual impurity from birth. Some Hasidic Jews to this very day will not drink from a wine bottle if the outside was touched by a Gentile, and the Galat-Kosher standards make the Pharisee standard look absolutely lenient by comparison. They were telling Yeshua that his hands, the hands that were healing the sick and raising the dead and restoring the crippled, were defiled because he wasn't taking the amount of water that you could fit inside an egg and pouring it over the outsides of his hands while speaking a prayer, claiming that it was commanded, and it was commanded for the priest serving in the temple, you know, but it had been commandeered by the Pharisees for their own tables at home. You know, if I have time, I'll talk about their belief that the dinner table was the altar of their home, but we may have to cover that some other time. Now, what they're saying is your hands that are working miracles are defiled for want of a bit of water and some prayers. You know, that's missing the big picture for sure. They cared more about their man-made ritual and not what was happening all around them. The kingdom of heaven was among them. Breaking violently in to rout the enemy and his demons that the people it had the people of the world held captive. Those hands were restoring people to wholeness and to service and to community. Those hands were about to have nails pierced through them, not because of sin, but because he wasn't observing "quote unquote" the natural order of things by doing what seemed important to the people he had come to save and yet he did have followers among the pharisees nicodemus and joseph of arimathea and many pharisees were among those who came to faith after shavuot according to acts like i've been saying outsider versus insider isn't ever permanent persecutors can become liberators with god all things are possible i will make the exception that hebrews does seem to say that if you deny Yeshua after knowing him, that there's no salvation after that. So what will his response be? Verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Now, This seems sort of harsh, but remember that this is a sequel to the Beelzebul controversy where the scribes from Jerusalem flat out accused him of being in league with the prince of demons. They'd blaspheme the spirit. Now the scribes were expecting him to ritually wash their hands that had come in contact with the sickness all around him instead of rejoicing that their fellow Jews were being healed and delivered and restored they've said for all intents and purposes your works do not matter because you have not danced to our tune so this is really a second accusation because not only have they slandered the holy spirit but now they're slandering the father's mercy as well in giving these miracles they are acting the part of god's enemies and so they are being treated as such by yeshua The quote in question is from Isaiah 29 and comes right after a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem by the heathen nations. So Yeshua is warning them, and they know the reference well. You aren't as safe as you think you are. Your world is about to be shattered, just as happened to your idolatrous ancestors. Their meticulous form of righteousness has been found wanting, and it has not helped them discern the times. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. Now let's talk about tradition for a minute because a lot of folks misuse this. Yeshua never denounced all traditions. He observed some himself. But when you are neglecting actual commandments, and especially those dealing with justice and righteousness, in order to micromanage food of all things, and to elevate food to the point where it is 67% of your legal rulings, then that's messed up. I mean, what percentage of the commandments does it actually make up? Not 67%. I mean, gosh, hardly any. And he's going to give them an earful about a particularly shameful example of just totally missing the point. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Exodus 20, verse 12, and 21, verse 17. No dispute there. Nothing controversial. These are commandments. And they're probably thinking, and... We always honor our parents, and we would never curse them. But then he drops the mic, if he had one. Verse 11, and 12 and 13. But if you say, a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God, by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And you notice they say that you have handed down. He doesn't say that Moses has handed down. He says that you have handed down. And Jeez, can you imagine? Now, it's questionable whether Yeshua is referring to people who use um, declaring their animals as korban as an excuse not to give to their parents and the Pharisees and the legal experts are allowing it, or if a guy who has made a rash vow is being told he can't help his parents because of it. Either way, the principle of and afesh, the spirit of the law, has been grossly violated. Whoever does this needs to have a meeting of the minds with some Catholic nuns with rulers in hand because those ladies ain't playing. right, And we can roll our eyes and judge them, but I wonder if we look close? You know, what might we see in our own lives of the kind of legalistic blindness that would allow others to suffer so that we could quote-unquote keep a commandment? Yeshua is very clearly articulating here that some laws are higher than others. The obligation to make sure your parents can eat is higher than making a sacrifice to God. I mean, as though God would honor a sacrifice that came at the expense of a man's parents starving to death anyway. It goes against everything in the Torah. It is not loving to God, the implication that he would find the aroma from that sacrifice soothing and pleasant. It's treating him like one of the false, tyrannical gods of the nations that had to be appeased, or else. Also, it's not loving your neighbor, And worse than that, it's not loving your parents. You see, Yeshua is telling them a lot more here than meets the eye. He isn't condemning their traditions. He's condemning a mindset that places meticulous legalism above caring for the needy. Throughout the Torah and the prophets, we see God condemning his people whenever they become oppressors either by actually being oppressors or by refusing to alleviate suffering. What we do is supposed to show the world God's agendas and priorities and values, just as what we do not do is supposed to show the same. So what does it say to the nations that the Pharisees were so desperate to show themselves as separate from what does it say to them about the character of Yahweh if he would rather have them burn an animal to a crisp, and I'm not slamming the sacrificial system here, just hear me up. than feed their mom and dad? What does it say about Yahweh when the nations see him as needing to be fed just like any other god at the expense of those who truly need to be fed? What does it say about Yahweh's priorities if he's presented as caring more about a sacrifice than about the least of these? How are they to look at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if his people are begging because of technicalities? They needed the nun with the ruler. It's like, oh, you did not just refuse to feed your mom and dad just to soothe your conscience over a debatable matter of the law. Whack. Tell me, you didn't make your elderly parents have to beg at the gate of the city just to eat because of a rash vow you made and now you don't want to offend the Pharisees and the Torah experts. Whack. Oh my gosh, Becky. Did you just quickly go and declare all your animals corban when your parent, when you saw your parents coming for a handout? Whack, whack, whack. Okay. I hope that I haven't given any of you flashbacks to Catholic school. Likely, if my left-handed Catholic school-educated father were listening, he'd be curled up in the fetal position in the corner. Just kidding. But they did whack the heck out of him for, you know, trying to get him to be right-handed back in the 50s. Now, here we go. Later, rabbis would agree with my fictitious nun as we see this loophole closed in Mishnah Tractate Nedarim 5 6. All right? So they realized that this was a problem. They realized that this was a loophole that people were exploiting. They agreed with Yeshua's ruling here. All right? So, you know, not everything that the Pharisees believed in the first century is still believed by, um, by the Jews today, by the Orthodox Jews today, as a matter of fact, you know, Hillel had a horrifying, you know, belief about it being, you should be able to divorce your wife for any reason. If she burns a meal, Mark would have been long gone. (laughs) Ever since my uh, first stroke back in 1997, if I put something in the broiler, I guarantee you I forget about it and burn it. Um... So we don't have garlic bread unless he's there watching it. <laughs> ah! Um But also if you find someone prettier and anyone can find someone prettier as their wife gets older. So these were oppressive rulings. But, you know, it's not practiced in Judaism today because they're not total dogs. All right. Now, and there is even more to this, you know, and the importance of, of, of what's being debated here. Next week, we'll pick up part two of this event where Yeshua talks about what actually defiles a person for realsies. And as the Torah would agree, it isn't eating with unwashed hands unless you're actually in the temple and you are a priest serving your course and eating your portion of the sacrifices and the bread offerings. And then it's really bad mojo. But going beyond that, Yeshua is about to venture into the region of Tyre and Sidon and then into the Decapolis. All predominantly Gentile areas. He will be approached by and will heal and deliver suffering Gentiles. And uh, then he'll feed 4,000 of them. Okay? Okay. The question of whether one has the obligation to stay away from Gentiles and shun any contact with them, and especially food-related, food-related contact, is of the utmost importance. If he bowed down to the Pharisees' hand-washing demands, he would be setting the precedent that would disallow the first Jewish missionaries to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the nations as prophesied by Isaiah and the prophets. But still, even though he's doing this and taking the stand that your food cannot defile you uh, or make you common when you are otherwise part of a holy people, simply because you have had contact with the outside world or, or unknown influences, okay? Food can be ordinary or holy, and both are suitable for eating. I mean, think about it. How could you even eat during your menstrual cycle if you had any sort of, or if you had any sort of discharge, or if someone in your family had died? You need to be able to eat. God didn't create us to fear eating normal, ordinary food. In fact, without a temple, all food is common. And it can, if it conforms to the definition of food in Leviticus 11, it's clean. What is clean cannot be rendered unclean just because of ritually unwashed hands. What is holy, that's different. And there were requirements before eating the sacrifices. But this wasn't a discussion about that. This was elevating normal food, you know, and creating another level between holy and common and demanding that everyone accept it as binding. You know, and, okay, you know, it wasn't easy for the disciples to get over this, as we see in Acts 10. Peter still had to have a vision flat out telling him that going with those Gentiles would not render him unclean or undo his status as a member of the holy people. You know, and actually, I forgot to mention it. But as we're going to see in three weeks, when Yeshua heals the uh, the, the deaf man with the... Uh, the speech impediment, he actually spits on his finger and touches the man's tongue. Okay? I do not even do that to write for my friends. (laughs) Well, no, I would if they had a terrible problem and the Lord told me that would heal them. I would do it. But I mean, okay? Yeah. How was he going to do that if he bowed to the hand-washing demands? You know, our status is through the body of Messiah and has nothing to do with how clean our bodies are we have a conferred status through Yeshua and and my status is the same uh, regardless of whatever I come in contact with as long as I'm not trying to enter the temple precincts that, you know, are forbidden to a person with corpse impurity which we all have because, you know, there's no ashes of the red heifer to cure it so we all have the grand kahuna worst kind of impurity there is you know Sometimes we forget that holiness is not about us and never has been. Not at Sinai and not here. We are to act holy because he has confirmed holiness or set apartness upon us. But we cannot become more holy. We can become ritually cleaner but not holier. Although, I take that back. We are so terminally ritually unclean, you know without the ashes, the red heifer, that it's not funny, and we can't actually currently become ritually cleaner. Okay. Oh, well. You know, so next week we're going to talk about what really defiles a person. What really makes a person unclean in a way that can't be washed away. So we're going to be looking at what the Mosaic Law teaches about it, And how Yeshua expands on what Moses wrote, bringing everyone kind of, well, trying to bring everyone back to sanity on the issue because we cannot afford to major in the minors and focus on clean hands when our hearts are just desperately wicked, um, you know, as, as Jeremiah told us. Anyway, I will uh, see you next week for uh, What Defiles a Man. (laughs) Bye-bye.